0: Hi, I'm Riley Fessler. I'm a podcast producer here at the DSR Network, which means that my job is to make sure that we have great content and great guests across all of our shows. Our programming is supported by our members, and for that, we are truly grateful. I hope that you'll consider becoming a member to support the work that we do. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for nearly all of our shows, early access to episodes, enhanced show notes, and access to our exclusive DSR Slack and Discord communities. Membership is just $7 per month, or $70 per year. To become a member, please visit thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. Thank you very much for your support. The foreign policy landscape has changed quite a bit in the last year. This week's episode, From the Archive, is a look back at January 2023, where David Sanger and Rosa Brooks join David Rothkoff to break down some of the biggest foreign policy questions of the day. Please enjoy.
1: Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome again to our podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from kind of warm and pleasant Washington, D.C. I am joined today of course, by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, who is in, it looks kind of more like Alexandria than Jamaica. Uh, would that be right?
2: Sadly, yes.
1: So sorry. And also by David Sanger, who may be in Washington, D.C., but there are no books in the bookshelf behind him. I don't really understand
3: that. Yeah, I'm. I'm in the swamp, but the swamp is pleasantly kind of 55 degrees today. Yeah, it's very very nice. What's going to happen now is that, that one of the effects of global warming is that people in Washington will see no reason to, like, go south for the winter. Well,
1: I'm glad I moved to Washington. So one of the things that shows the intelligence of both of you, and I might add myself, is that none of us are in Davos right now. But we get dispatches. I just saw one that uh, Henry Kissinger just spoke, who should be an example to us all. He's 99 years old. He's speaking at Davos. And uh, he said, you know, at this point, the whole notion that Ukraine is neutral is essentially silly. It's been mooted by the Russian invasion. And Ukraine should be in NATO now. And uh, I've noticed a number of other people in the past couple of weeks sort of coming around to this view. That uh, whatever the case was at the beginning of this, the idea that Ukraine is somehow going to be some neutral buffer zone just doesn't hold water anymore. What do you think?
2: Well, first of all, I'm not sure I regard Henry Kissinger as, as a person we should, from whom we should be taking advice on this or anything else at this point in time.
1: Well, but possibly longe- longevity.
2: It, merely not being dead yet is not, uh, <laughs> does not create wisdom.
3: Um <laughs> hey, that's really bad news for me and Rob as I, <laughs> I
0: know, you. I know you're hoping.
3: <laughs> oh um, god. Cuz um, it's really the only thing we had going for us to
2: take. That's true. <laughs> no, you two both have a great deal more going for you than than Henry Kissinger and always have. I, you know, here's what I worry about when I hear things like that. I worry that this this is this is like one of those situations where I don't know to the much maligned frog in the boiling water, right? And of course it turns out the frogs are much smarter than people and no there's no way a frog just stays in the boiling water. The second the water starts getting hot, the frog sensibly leaps out. Except people are dumber and people do stay in the boiling water until they boil. And I worry a little bit, you know, when 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 this conflict started off, the Biden administration was was rightly very concerned about doing something that would provoke a major, a, a military conflict, an overt military conflict between the United States and Russia, between the West and Russia, and our policy in terms of the types of aid we were giving the Ukrainians was, was pretty carefully cali- calibrated to try to avoid doing that, to to help Ukraine without actually sparking a major, major conflagration. And as the conflict has gone on. I think we have upped the ante in terms of what we're willing to provide Ukraine. And and that cycle makes total sense, right? Because, of course, Russia's upped the ante in terms of what a bunch of assholes they are uh, and how reckless they seem to be and how willing they seem to be to commit war crimes, to tolerate massive amounts of civilian casualties, and to generally thumb their nose at the uh, international system altogether, as well as at you know the U.S. and Western European states in particular. But at the same time, I, I'm not sure that the I'm not sure that we should be forgetting about that initial set of concerns. I, I think they're still valid, right? And I think that there is no question that declaring Ukraine to be making Ukraine part of NATO, I mean, partly I suppose the timing dep- depends on the timing. But right now, that seems like a really bad idea. Right now, that sucks the United States and multiple other NATO states quite directly into this confrontation, which doesn't seem like a particularly good idea at some hypothetical future point, you know, the devil here is in the is in the timing. But I so I do worry that this is one of those situations, let me go if I may go back to the frog, you know, where where as the level of risk sort of ratchets up, the level of geopolitical risk to us ratchets up, that we get lulled into this false set of security because it ratchets up a little bit by bit and we almost don't notice it. And we start thinking that things are perfectly fine and stable where they are, and that, therefore, they'll be perfectly fine and stable if we ratchet it up a little bit more. And I think that's that's a really dangerous situation to be in. You know, if we're talking about Ukraine becoming part of NATO at some hypothetical future time, 10 years after a satisfactory end to the conflict, well, sure, we'll figure that out then. But if we're talking about it any time in the immediate future, that just does seem like a a recipe for dramatically increasing the risk of a direct, uh, a direct military and possibly nuclear confrontation between superpowers.
1: So, David, Rosa is clearly one of those nuclear war chickens, are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, this <laughs> is why Rosa is exactly right there. <laughs> so, to phrase it another way, because Rosa has made the case very uh, effectively, we have to think about what are our strategic objectives here? And it strikes me that Biden has had two strategic objectives. Number one, help Ukraine remain an independent, viable state, democratic state. Objective number two, avoid World War III, as Rosa has put this outright. The way he's operationalized that has been to provide the arms to Ukraine, but not people and fighting and not putting us directly in conflict with Russian forces, which would lead to that escalation and could conceivably lead to nuclear escalation. And if that moment happened, it would happen, you know, very slowly and then very, very, very fast. And so if you allowed them to get into NATO in the middle of a fighting war, you are essentially saying to every NATO state, you are now committing your forces to fight russian forces on ukrainian territory or on your territory if the russians decide to expand the war and if you're the russians and you're trying to keep ukraine from getting into nato the first thing you do is threaten to or actually expand the war i'm not saying that the russians are very good at that and right now we've learned a lot about the weaknesses of the russian forces but if you're saying you want ukraine in nato now what you mean is you want nato fighting russian forces directly now and that if you get into a nuclear escalation ladder you're either counting on the russians backing away or you're willing to walk up that ladder and so i don't think we should you know sugarcoat what this would all be about the fact of the matter is right now It strikes me that Ukraine is sort of a de facto member of NATO. We are training its forces. We are providing them with ammunition. We are providing them with IMARS. We are providing them with armored vehicles. We may soon be providing them with tanks or someone else will. Uh, The British have already announced theirs. So the only thing we're not doing is getting in direct conflict, and that's what NATO membership would do.
1: Yeah, um, by the way, I don't have Kissinger's remarks in front of me. I don't know if he said do it now or do it in the future. I do think there is some underlying logic to the notion that whatever was the case before this war started, Ukraine is not neutral, nor nor will it ever again be neutral. And you know, the timing, of course, is a is a reasonable issue to discuss.
3: But by another the way, David, thing, I-, I took a quick I took a quick look at the Kissinger thing, and in one indication that Mr. Kissinger, Dr. Kissinger still has it all together at nearly age 100, I think he turns 100 in uh, in March, is that he didn't actually go to Davos. He's sitting in his nice library with pictures of Dean Atchison and Nelson Rockefeller around him and conducting a conversation with our friend Graham Allison, who is at Davos.
1: Yes. Well, you know, I think highly of Graham, but I think that's a mistake. As for Henry not going there, that sounds sensible.
2: I think the point of NATO membership is almost entirely symbolic, right? Because as David says, for all intents and purposes, we're pretty much acting as though Ukraine is already a NATO member. The Article 5 of the NATO treaty does not require any other member states to go to war in mutual defense. It just requires them to you know, take appropriate actions if another member state is attacked. And obviously, that leaves a whole lot of wiggle room for states that not wish to actually enter into direct military conflict on behalf of a number of NATO member states. But everybody forgets that. And the Russians forget it too. And the Russians won't care. And I I, I think it's not so much that actual NATO membership would dramatically alter the legal obligations or the practical actions uh, of the West, but the Russians would perceive it as doing so. And given that, it would have the same effect of actually doing so when it comes
1: to escalation. Well, speaking of virtual NATO membership, there, uh, as you know, have, has, has been a desire expressed in the part of both Finland and Sweden to join NATO. And pretty much everybody in NATO is cool with this, with one exception, at least one most visible exception, and that is Turkey's President Erdogan. And he has said that under the current circumstances, he can't support it. And of course, this needs to be unanimous. There are those with whom I have spoken to in the administration who believe this is because Erdogan has an election coming up and he's playing, and once the election is over, there'll be some deal that can be struck with him. Uh, But he does seem to be sort of a fair-weather ally. And the response of NATO thus far has been, yeah, okay, well, we'll deal with that, but we're going to do everything in our power to make Finland and Sweden... Be as close to being NATO members as possible without actually, you know, signing on the dotted line. Where do you think this is all going to go?
3: The Finnish president, when he was in Washington in the fall, told me at breakfast one day that he thought that Finland and Sweden would be in NATO by Christmas. That would be the Christmas that just passed. Given the difficulties with Turkey, I think they might be lucky to be in NATO fully by next Christmas or the Christmas after that. Did he specify which Christmas or just any He didn't. I realized I should have asked him, and it tells you what a crummy reporter I am. So we've got an issue, and the issue is that um, he has argued that Sweden in particular, but also Finland, support and and harbor PKK uh, members, the group that uh, Turkey has been trying to go eradicate. Uh, They've done what they've done with the United States. They've demanded uh, the instant extradition without much legal process of people they want back in Turkey to put on trial. And the Swedes in particular have said, you know, we're not going around our, our legal system merely to get into NATO. But I do think there is a mechanism here. And I think what it is, is for a declaration to be made similar to what the U.S. said itself, that it would go and defend and Sweden in the interim while they're getting in, so you didn't create a gap where the Russians attack because they're not yet a member of NATO, and see if you can get the other 29 members of NATO to all make the commitment that Sweden and Finland will be treated as if they are already a NATO member, even if they don't have voting rights. Until that moment arrived, and obviously Turkey wouldn't sign on be interesting to see if everybody else did and whether this sort of junior membership in NATO is better than getting the kids' captain's wings when you get on the on the airplane right The advantages to the West of putting Finland and Sweden in NATO are huge because it greatly complicates. Putin's calculus, it gives him a much bigger border that for the West that he's going to have to directly defend, if you believe that the next conflict is about physical borders and not about cyber and so forth.
1: So, Rosa, NATO minus one, That's the, that seems to be David's formula here. What do you think?
2: What do I think? Is that a good idea?
1: <laughs> do I agree yeah, with good I mean, you know, yeah, what do you yeah. do? I mean, Erdogan seems like a giant pain in the ass.
2: There seem to
1: be ongoing issues of a thousand kinds with this. And by the way, you know, the Kurds probably should have an independent state, right? So, you know, Turkey's a giant problem here. So what's your response? Turkey is
2: a perennial thorn in the side of the rest of NATO. It is not only problematic from the perspective of being a spoiler with regard to nations like Finland's efforts to get in over the PKK, but it's also a decreasingly democratic state. And an increasingly autocratic state, it's not a state that we should necessarily be pelling up to. So from that perspective, yes, absolutely. You know, I think, I think the problem with Turkey, well, okay, I take this back. I was going to say the problem with Turkey is that if we ease away from Turkey, Turkey eases back towards Russia. But since Turkey does that anyway, whenever they feel like it, it's not clear that anything we do is going to actually decrease that in a reliable way.
1: It's certainly a problem. The people I've spoken to in the government seem to think it's going to get solved one way or another, that there's some deal out there. I don't know whether it happens after the election, whether it involves F-16s, what else it might involve, but uh, it's one of the things that's on the mind of the administration. Another thing that's on the mind of the administration is Israel. Jake Sullivan arrived in Israel today. He is meeting with the new administration. The new Netanyahu administration makes the Republican—pardon me? The new old administration. Well, new old, except it's, it's different.
3: It's, it is, it's significantly to the right of the old,
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sort of makes the Republicans in Congress look moderate. There's some real lunatics in it. And there's any number of ways that this new administration could be absolutely— An untenable partner for the Biden administration, whether it's effectively annexing the West Bank, or ending the independence of the judiciary, or going after the rights of LGBTQ plus people, or undermining further the humanitarian rights protections of Palestinians, or attacking democracy for all of which are things that are on their agenda. Now, I think Jake's going to go in there and, and, and say, well, we agree on Iran. Let's talk about that. We you know, try to find some common ground. But I was, I was at a gathering the other day in which somebody said, and there were some administration types there, do you think this new administration is going to be a problem? And everybody just broke into laughter and nobody actually answered the question because it was so clear that it's going to be a huge problem.
2: David, can you explain to me and to our listeners, as I have not followed this as closely as I think you have, why is Netanyahu not in jail? How is he, how, 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 how is this possible?
1: He's not in jail because, you know, the the wheels of justice turn slowly. It's still possible he could be in jail. And today, as we record this, the Supreme Court ruled that one of his senior ministers could not actually join the government because he was convicted of tax fraud. And so, you know, there are there are things in the offing. I think, uh, however, with your usual deft, soft touch here, you have, you know, zeroed in on one of the reasons that this administration is so right-wing, and that's Netanyahu's weaker than he was. So he couldn't really pick his partners, and he had to take these religious extremists and Nationalist extremists on board, and uh, it's you know a problem for Israel. Certainly, uh, but it's also a problem for the United States. David, you know, I was posing the question generally to you, like, what can be done if anything?
3: Well, there's not a whole lot we can do. The elections happen. The only thing that I think Jake Sullivan can do, and uh, Secretary of State Blinken, who we think is headed to Israel after Mr. Sullivan by about a week or two is to try to put some guardrails on what they do. It strikes me they've got three different but interrelated problems. The first is moves by this new government to undercut the authority of the Israeli Supreme Court. They don't like the fact that the Supreme Court rulings go, basically their word is law, and they want a situation in which the Israeli parliament can essentially overturn Supreme Court rulings with a majority vote. I'm sure there are some in the United States who probably would favor something similar. I think we'd have similar I think we'd have troubles if that if that happened. The second problem they have is we used to dance around whether American officials would talk about a two-state solution and Mr. Netanyahu in his previous run as prime minister would sometimes utter the words but most of the time basically admit that he was opposed to a two-state solution. Now we have a government that is wildly opposed to a two-state solution, and has said in his platform that it's perfectly willing to move ahead with settlements that we have considered try to pre-decide, you know, the issues that would be in negotiation. I think the best the administration could hope for is to keep Netanyahu from actively declaring those uh, settlements to be permanent Israeli territory. And then the third problem they have is Iran. And they have this problem because Netanyahu came this close to attacking Iran under previous nuclear, when previous nuclear red lines were crossed. Well, now the Iranians have crossed just about all of the big red lines we have set up, including producing uh, 60% enriched uranium, which is a very short run to bomb-grade uranium. And at some point, the Israelis are likely to come to the United States and say, okay, we're not putting up with this anymore. And the more subtle methods you've tried to stop them are failing. So we would move ahead with military action. That would be a calculus, I think, on Netanyahu's part about whether this would unify the country behind him or whether it would be a huge risk. In the past, he's walked right up to the edge and not quite done it. And I'm sure that Jake Sullivan is coming up with many reasons and probably some joint steps they can take together against Iran to dissuade him from, from an outright attack.
1: So this is a place in the podcast where we take a break, we say goodbye to those of you who are from the general public, and we encourage you to become members by going to the DSR Network. Membership is growing because we offer so many new and exciting Bits of content, go to the website to find out what that is, dsrnetwork.com. Uh, for those of you who are members who get the benefit of the remaining third of this podcast, stand by. So, Rosa, this seems to be a chronic problem now. You know, Turkey is an ally, but they're not really an ally. We've seen Saudi Arabia, sometimes described as a friend, not really on a lot of things. Israel is an ally, but among the other things they've done with this new administration is say, Hey, you know, we're really close to Russia. Let's not piss them off. Let's not say anything bad about Russia.
2: Uh, they've actually we gone to step- really have any friends.
1: Well, we may have some friends, but we've got a bunch of fair weather friends who we tend to call allies when they're not really, I mean, is a country like Israel really an ally? If they're attacking democracy, they're violating human rights. They're, sidling up to Russia there you know they tried to in fact effectively undermine the obama administration's iran nuclear deal is that the behavior of an ally
2: uh no although to you know quote the old line nations have no friends only interests uh, no permanent friends only interests i mean in some ways right no surprise you know that 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 uh Nations is going to do what nations is going to do, and why should we assume that they're going to always want to do what we want them to do? So, so yeah, that I, I don't think the fact that they are behaving in a two-faced, sometimes three-faced manner means that we should or or even can decide that we're just not interested in partnering with them on much of anything, and we don't want to talk to them. You know, I think we can't afford to do that. That that the world that we are. Find ourselves in, and we say this all the time about the, the Chinese. We used to say this about the Russians until things got too hopeless. You know that even when there are significant differences, areas of competition, even conflict, that there are often nonetheless areas of common interest and room for cooperation. I think it, it is a shift in mindset, though, especially for states like Israel, where it just becomes such a you know required part of American politics for political leaders on both Republicans and Democrats to pretend that Israel is our best friend and our staunchest ally, and never, ever, ever will we in any possible way deviate from our staunch support for Israel. I think we need to try to shift away from that to, to treating Israel like we treat every other country. It's just to say, you know, when they when they act in consort with us and cooperate with us, we're, we're happy about that, and they very frequently don't. And when they don't, we're going to criticize them for it, and sometimes we're going to try to thwart what they're trying to do if we think it's if we think it is sufficiently mischievous and problematic, that's what we're going to have to do. So I think it's partly just a, re- a rhetorical shift. And I think that, I, you know, what I hope is that the American people and more broadly the, the American both parties are a little bit closer to being ready to, to acknowledge that. I think the Democratic Party is a little bit closer, certainly than it was 10 or 15 years ago, to being willing to say, you know, yeah, you know, we, we support Israel's right to exist. We are allies on numerous issues, but we have a lot of real problems here, too, and we're not going to pretend otherwise. Um, I don't think the Republican Party is there. I think they're still waiting for the second coming of the Messiah, which colors some of their views on all of this. But, but yeah, they ain't our buddies.
3: You know, this is you know, the perpetual problem for administrations and mostly Democratic administrations, Donald Trump basically was uninterested in the, in the Palestinian issue, so he just announced you know, 100% backing of the Israelis, even if there was back, pulling back and forth behind the scenes. What's happened now is that Israel has managed to alienate a good part of its constituency in the United States, and it struggles for how to go, go deal with that. And in the U.S., the argument among Israel's allies is, are you, do you back Israel no matter what, sort of say my Israel right or wrong, or do you say you will back Israel when they meet a certain set of conditions, which is essentially what a large segment of the Israeli uh, support in the U.S. is now insisting? And that's the s- fundamental source of tension.
1: Yeah, it actually gets a little bit deeper with this crowd that's currently there, because this crowd that's currently there in the Israeli government would like to narrow the criteria for actually what counts as a Jew. Um, And, uh, of course, most American Jews are secular. And so the argument uh, of this uh, Israeli administration is trying to make is, you know, essentially to American Jews is you must uh, remain supportive of us for historical ties— but by the way, we don't really think you're Jew anymore. Well, you're not part of the club, but please keep those checks coming. That seems like a a losing political proposition for me. Another area where our relationship ebbs and flows a bit is China. And in the case of China, there has just been a meeting of our uh, treasury secretary, Janet Yellen, with high Chinese leadership in which she came out of the meeting and she said some pretty Normal things like we're going to work together, we're going to focus on, you know, areas of common interest like the environment and so forth. It's just worthy of note because there have been Americans and there have been meetings where it's been all acrimony. There are people who think we can't really cooperate with the Chinese, that, you know, they are our rising enemy. But since the Biden Xi meeting in Indonesia, I've sensed a little bit of an easing on that on both sides, and the new Chinese foreign minister has been putting in place some people, and I just saw an article today saying they're moving away from their wolf warrior position, which is not to say everybody's buddies. I was at the Chinese Lunar New Year party at the Chinese embassy last night when they had a lot of very good food from local Chinese restaurants, and the American representative there for the ceremonies was a deputy assistant secretary of state. And his focus was almost exclusively on the differences between our countries. So, you know, there are some underlying tensions, but I sense a slight moderation and a recognition that we have some common interests. Am I right? And what do you think of that?
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and can I start off by saying that we should probably take up a collection from our listeners to send Dick Sullivan, in particular, on a vacation because the poor guy looks like he needs it. I was going to say, you know, this stuff is hard, right? Because we're constantly walking a tightrope. Where if we cozy up too much to people who are creeps in all kinds of ways, then we embolden their creepiness, and we we potentially get into domestic political trouble. On the other hand, if we do nothing but emphasize the areas of disagreement and conflict, we risk creating a self-fulfilling prophecy in which they react the same way, and that actually increases the risk of serious conflict. And I think China, you know, is, is a is a classic example of that, where they're trying to walk that tightrope. Jake, Janet Yellen, everybody in the Biden administration, Biden himself, uh, of sort of simultaneously trying to send a very strong message to the Chinese, uh, you know, do not screw around with China, Taiwan, do not screw around with our do not screw around with industrial espionage or surveillance in our country. We will be very, very serious about that, et cetera. And to try to send that message in a credible way, while at the very same time saying, saying because this is true, we have all kinds of common interests. We have all kinds of areas where cooperation is beneficial to both of us and sometimes perhaps essential to our, to our shared prosperity and essential indeed to global prosperity and stability. And, and I think that there are doing as good a job as I can imagine anybody doing, because I, I don't think this is easy. I think it's, it is one of those areas where there's just kind of constant reevaluation of are we getting that balance just right. And I thought Janet Yellen's visit was an important and helpful corrective step to veering a little too far in the direction of we see you looking at Taiwan, that we, we don't like the way you're looking at Taiwan. And, you know, boy, do we have big weapons and so do they, you know, that that, I think we were veering maybe a little too far in that direction. As I said, it can become self-fulfilling. So I'm glad to see that now we've got something sort of, hey, everybody, now let's just remember that we also have all sorts of common interests. And it's in in nobody's interest to end up having an overt conflict. It's in everybody's interest to simultaneously keep saying, hey, we have serious disputes, um, but at the same time, we can work together.
1: I agree. You're entirely right. David, since Rosa has disposed of this completely, and I don't wish to hear what you have to say, but no, no, I'm kidding. If you wish to say, no, no, if you wish to say something. Do you want to have us
2: take up a collection to send you
1: on vacation? I would like that. But um, uh, no, no, comment on this, if you will, David. But as, as this were going on, you know, I noticed in the background here in my office on the MSNBC, there's a story about universities banning TikTok. And since you are our official cyber czar of the deep state, where do you come out on the TikTok thing, David? I'm I just I've just thought let's get a conclusive response because, you know, there are some security issues. Uh, the government seems to, you know, seems to be banning this, but universities, is that necessary? Is the TikTok in the US, which is owned by US companies, big a threat? You know. I don't you you study this stuff. Sure. W- what should we all be thinking?
3: When the TikTok issues first came up in the Trump administration, I wrote a front page piece in The Times that said TikTok is more of a parenting problem than a national security problem. I have come to revise my view. And the reason I have revised my view is that, in most software, most apps- like is,
1: is that you can't get your kids to
3: oh, stop? My parenting problem, right. That's just- right. <laughs> okay. um,
2: so Definitely true in my
3: household. That's right. So the security issue is essentially one that the way this app is designed, you can't opt out from it following what you do, what sites you go to, what you click on, and drawing a portrait of you. For most things you can opt out, but that's not the essence of what TikTok is. The second problem that you have for it is which is the most solvable one, is that the data is acceptable, is accessible by unknown Chinese officials under Chinese law. TikTok could be told you're turning over this data without any kind of court order and so forth. So the easy thing to do is segregate the data in the United States on US servers. And through a number of technical means, make it impossible basically to access that by the TikTok designers and owners. But that doesn't get at the core problem that the code, which is pretty mysterious right now, goes directly into the phones of 100 million Americans. Let's face it. You are not going to get 100 million Americans to take TikTok off of their phone. That would be the software equivalent of trying to enact prohibition. And David, since you were around for it, you remember how well prohibition worked, right? That that wasn't the best moment in the rock. Actually, Council.
1: right. I don't remember any of it, but that's because I was drinking. So <laughs> okay.
3: So so the the core issue now, I think, is can you move the design of the algorithm? to an American set of designers who are operating under monitored conditions to make sure basically that the algorithm does not violate the issues that we're worried about, which is allowing a state a backdoor into 100 million phones. And can you do that without killing the magic that makes TikTok work? And there are a lot of TikTok competitors who would be perfectly happy if you killed that magic. So, this is why it's taken the Biden administration two years to come up with a solution, because there isn't an easy solution out here to this one. But I don't think, as a practical or political matter, you're going to see Joe Biden and the Democrats argue that we should take TikTok off of all phones. So, they're doing the easy thing, which is take them off of your government owned phones.
1: Do the sons of David Sanger, cyber czar
3: of the deep state, do they use TikTok? I do not believe they do. They have friends who send them occasional TikTok videos. I have friends who send me TikTok videos. Your
2: sons are a little older than my They are a little older. Nice. They're they in may their be 20s. Older and wiser.
3: Uh, although I do tell you, David, that for all the security concerns we have, I do not keep TikTok on my phone.
1: Interesting. Well, there you have it, Deep State. There you have it, direct from your Cyberzar. That's his advice. He's living the life. He's walking the walk. And you will not see any videos of him walking the walk on TikTok. And my
3: friends will tell you that I have the absence of cool that proves that I have no TikTok on my phone.
1: (laughs) Well, that's just not true. And anybody who's been listening to this show for the past eight
3: years knows that you're as cool as they come. Rosa, if you were building a nuclear tunnel basically in one of your silos, and you thought part of the nuclear threat could be Chinese related, would you allow TikTok inside your your underground? Inside
2: my hell no. Yeah. Yeah. Hell no. There you go. Nor will I allow YouTube, nor will I allow Instagram into my little silo.
1: Right. In fact, she's not sure how she feels about the internet just yet.
2: Yeah. No, we can have Google, I think. No Facebook, (laughs) no Instagram.
1: She's a, slow, she's a slow adapter. <laughs> uh, well, folks, we're just trying to help you here. That's what we try to do every single week. Here we've talked about Ukraine. We've talked about Turkey. We've talked about Israel. We've talked about China. We've talked about TikTok. You've gotten a lot out of this. We hope you've enjoyed it. I thank you, David. I thank you, Rosa. I thank you, everybody, for listening. And we look forward to joining you again for our next show which will actually come out tomorrow. So until then, bye-bye.